tune in with us today. Um, as we celebrate women in general here at Seoul, and uh, I want to share very briefly first on our series in 1 Corinthians, and then we're actually going to break off and we're going to go to a friend of mine. If you remember Joanne Goodwin, uh, she has prepared a very timely word made specifically for today. Uh, Joanne Goodwin was with us a couple of years ago, uh, and she spoke to us regarding mental illness in the church. She was fabulous. And uh, she has prepared something very special for today that we're going to jump right into as soon as I'm finished. And, uh, but before she comes to share, let me just pick up where I left off from last week. Paul had challenged the Corinthians to look around the church to observe what they valued the most by uh, uh, the world and what was actually strangely absent uh, in the church. And so by and large, the church wasn't really composed of wise people, scholars, or the debaters of the day. The church was not made up of the cultural elite there in Corinth. In verses 26 to 31, Paul urges the saints to, to look around them in the church to see who is present. And the church is not made up of this upper crust of society, but rather the church was made up of the rejects, the despised of society. And of course there were exceptions, but the rule uh, was very clear that Paul writes that the God had chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God had chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And at the base of the things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. And he does this so that nobody could boast. But God may receive the glory for what he accomplishes through the most unlikely to succeed in this world. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 is actually a carryover from last week. That's why I just wanted to take a few moments today to address it and then turn it over to Joanne. Paul continues to write in the theme of last week, and we read it this way. It says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and pervasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. The Corinthians now look upon Paul somewhat like a teenager who views their parents. Paul is not wise, but he's very simplistic. He lacks the charm, he lacks the charisma, which makes his spiritual children proud of him, so to speak. And so what has happened in Corinth is they begin to listen to others who have probably a higher level of esteem, especially amongst their peers. Paul sort of seeks to try to correct their thinking by reminding him that he's the same guy who came to them at the very beginning, preaching them the gospel of Jesus talking about the good news. It was through that very simplistic message and those methods that the Corinthians, who were once pagans, now become saints. Paul reminds them of his message and the manner in which he first comes to them and which actually results in their salvation. And so when he came, Paul did not come with the superiority of wisdom and he didn't come with some highfalutin words or thoughts, nor did he uh, employ any um, 
oratorical embellishments, if I can use those terms, which would draw attention to himself and draw attention to his methods. He came very simple. Paul came very straightforward approach, and he sought to make the message, uh, not the messenger, the primary. He came to them, as he says, proclaiming the testimony of God. That is, he came preaching the gospel in very simple terms without sensationalizing it. Why am I saying that? Well, let me point out the obvious here today. Today, every pastor is a TV evangelist right now. Right now at home, you can go, you can pick and choose what style you like, who you like, what subject matter you're interested in. It's all on your computer. It's all at your fingertips. And it's almost like there's a competition. Not that there is, but there's almost like a competition on Facebook between preachers like, pick me, pick me, watch me, watch me. And many times we, when we come back together, you know, well, I shouldn't say many times. I, I wonder, maybe when we come back together as a church, maybe there'll be people in my community who found somebody else better. And to be honest, you know, there is no greater critic of a preacher than himself or herself or another preacher. And it's been said that a preacher would rather drive a thousand miles to preach than to walk across the street to hear another one preach. It sounds a little bit prideful, but I have to admit, it's probably true. We all have styles and depth that we expect from a speaker. Think about that. With the various social media platforms, we all recognize that the audience is widespread. It's beyond just the local audience, the local church. As a matter of fact, even now on our streams, we have people on the other side of the world in France and Germany who have logged in. Now, without question, there is this cry for charisma in the pulpit. That's what we want to see. The draw of the person in the podium, their presence, their dress, the way that they can work a crowd. That's something that attracts all of us. And we become impressed by motivational speakers because they can move us to a desired end. The use of their voice inflections. And the language of the people, it, it pleases our ears. That's what draws us in. And even if the message is not pleasant, if the charisma is right, we can swallow it easier. Listen, it works for politicians, it works for entertainers, and it even works for preachers. We learned that the Greeks loved language, uh, knowledge, according to Paul. They loved university, they loved speeches, they loved philosophy, they loved debates. In Acts chapter 14, verse 12, Paul and Barnabas were in a city called Lystra. It's in present-day Turkey today. There they healed a lame man who had never walked for his life. And when people saw this take place, when they saw this great miracle performed, the residents automatically believed that the gods had taken on flesh and had arrived among them. And so they began calling Barnabas Zeus, and they called Paul Hermes because he was that chief speaker. Well, were they? Were, were Paul and Barnabas gods? Well, no. But it's interesting uh, of the, the assignment of their names. Eloquence is the word that is used. Eloquence does not equate infallibility. See, the danger arises when we use the emotional appeal as a standard. That the, the masses don't consider the element of truth in the message. If a preacher is popular... We might just swallow anything that they throw at us, even if it's false, because we like the way the message is communicated. The politician, they can claim absolutely anything as long as the masses are held by his eloquence. The same goes with preaching. 
Notice in Acts 18, verses 24 to 26, the story says this. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. Being acquainted only with the baptism of John, he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, remember, we've stumbled upon these two already, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So again, here you have Apollos, known as an eloquent man. He could use the local language well. He was persuasive in his presentation. But that day in the synagogue, his message fell short. He needed to learn some more. And so eloquence doesn't necessarily equate infallibility. Paul has something to say about knowledge versus eloquence. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles, But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. Paul says, basically, look at I have proved to you what I know what I'm talking about. For all of those things, those other super apostles, those who are trying to be louder, those who are trying to gain prestige over us as designated apostles by Jesus, they, they may speak better, But we have the information here. So be careful lest you ignore the information of truth just because the presentation falls short. So what is happening in the church in Corinth? Was it that some in the church were trying to undermine Paul's ministry? They were possibly even mocking his stage presence. In 2 Corinthians 10 we read, Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek, when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. It was kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing he's saying there. Second Corinthians, he continues to write, he says, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Some use these accusations to make the argument that Paul wasn't a good speaker and that he probably would have fallen short of eloquence if he was here today. But he definitely makes up forward in knowledge and what he was trying to communicate. In verse 3 there, back in uh, chapter 2, Paul turns his attention from the message and the method to his mindset. And he describes the attitude with which he came to the Corinthians with the gospel. If the charlatans of that day had lived in our own time, they would have worn expensive clothing. They would have had recent facelifts, right? They had a self-assured manner, a omnipresent smile all the time. They would have excluded confidence and composure. But this would not be so with Paul. When Paul first came to Corinth, he worked as a blue-collar worker, making tents with Aquila. His mind was set. It was characterized by a threefold description. There was weakness, there was fear, and much trembling. Interesting, that's how he describes himself. He may have come with a physical weakness. Uh, It it seemed that that that's the impression that we get from 2 Corinthians 12. In addition, I believe Paul came to Corinth with a very clear sense of his own limitations, knowing that the salvation and sanctification of people could only be accomplished by the miraculous intervention of God. So he preached the truth, and then God would show up. 
You know, Paul characterized his appearance as also as in, in fear and much trembling. We know there were fears for Paul. Luke indicates that to us. He describes that. We've already been through that. You know, after previous persecutions in other cities, Paul comes to Corinth. Again, he's faced with opposition. But what happens is God appears to Paul and he says the words of assurance. You know, don't be afraid any longer. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. I'm with you. We're not done yet. You know, I've always thought of Paul as a pit bull evangelist. And when you compare dogs to dogs, some dogs have no courage at all. Other dogs, they may sound awesome when they're threatened or harmed. They'll protect themselves sort of by backing off. And then still there's these other dogs, these pit bulls, who will continue to fight, though, until they're dead. And how easy it is to think of Paul in this way, as invincible and undaunting. But when we read all of the Scripture together, Luke's words indicate otherwise. Paul was a man who was similar to us in our passions. He had his fears. But God's words of assurance enabled him to press on in spite of his fears. Paul reminds the church, he's reminding even us of the manner and the content of the message that was preached to them. It was free from pretense and it was the wisdom of God. He just shared the truth of the gospel. Simple enough for children and yet challenging enough for the mature. And I think, honestly, from my perspective, that's the struggle of the preacher. Paul's intention wasn't to flaunt his knowledge or any other subject than this, to preach nothing else, to discover nothing else, but Jesus and him crucified. That was his whole purpose. Paul's subject was real. His intention was genuine in presenting the gospel of Jesus. And so he doesn't come in to wow the audience or to impress the most learned. He wasn't trying to gain a following with charisma or eloquence. or He wasn't even trying to intimidate by the use of big words or flowery language. His motivation was pure and simple. It was straightforward. And again, Paul's reason for preaching was to share Jesus. That's it, period. And Paul approached the gospel as, as he called it, the testimony of God. It wasn't Paul's story. It's God's story. There was no need for Paul to embellish upon the message of God for, for this testimony or this mystery of the kingdom because it came from the greatest authority ever. It was truth. It needed nothing but sharing. One of my profs in Bible college Dr. Harry Fought. He once said this. He said, if you approach the pulpit with no butterflies, it's time for you to quit. The seriousness of the moment should make even the most mature and experienced preacher tremble. Because what we are handling is really the word of life. And what we are dealing with are the issues of life and death every time we come before you. Preachers, ministers of the word, I think we need to tread very carefully. And, and listeners, I have to say this, you need to hold us accountable to the truth. Paul had fears and concerns. He had trembling and perhaps even a physical weakness. But the power of the message was not held back because of him. He presented and the Spirit was there demonstrating his power and presence among them. 
Case in point, Paul didn't want the people responding to him as a preacher, but to the message of the gospel of Jesus. He used plain language and simple presentation and, and let the Spirit of God take it and fill the message with grace and power. Was Paul a good preacher? Absolutely. Was Paul a man of prayer? I believe so without question. But he was also a person of hope and he was a person of concern for all people. He had every quality that you could hope to find in a preacher. My prayer and aim with this message was for us to be aware of what the scripture describes as a good preacher. The next time that you cue up a message on your screen, I want you to be observant with God's eyes. I want you to be observant with God's ears. Is the truth of God's word being handled correctly? Is the complete gospel of Jesus being presented or is it a person's opinion? If the answer to yes, if the answer is yes to my first two questions, then we need to pay attention. Don't disregard the message because the presentation's weak. The only disregard the message if the if it's not based on a gospel standard of truth. Listen to what you're watching. Now, with all that said, I'm done. I want to introduce my friend Joanne Goodwin, who is, by the way, a great preacher. She sent us a, sent me and a few others uh, an email saying, this is what's on my heart, and how I would like to make it available for you on Mother's Day. And I think it's perfect. So I'm inviting you to sit back, to relax, and to listen to what Joanne has to say to the church. Watch this. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Thanks for letting me into your living room. I love the decor. I love the pajamas you're wearing. You got your coffee. Some of you have snacks. I got my coffee. Wouldn't this be beautiful every Sunday morning if you could come in in your pajamas with a cup of coffee? Yeah, yeah. It's Mother's Day, though. And you know, what does that mean when I say that? When you hear, happy Mother's Day. Like some of you, you got great kids, you got a wonderful mother, and you think, yay, I'm going to celebrate all this wonderful motherhood. And some of you are thinking it brings sadness. Maybe your kids are lost and in dark places and you're worried and you're concerned and so it kind of brings a pain to you and some of you god forbid have lost a child can't even imagine that kind of agony and some of you don't have your own children and some of you have planned it that way and you're delighted and you're happy some of you don't have biological children and it hurts you and it brings a pain to you because you really wanted to have your own children just we all have different ideas. Some of you, maybe you never really had a mother who cared for you. Some mothers have abandoned their children at birth. Some kept them and just abused them. And I mean, mother holds a different picture for so many of us. But I, I hope that as we talk about this Mother's Day, I'm not going to do the whole Proverbs 31 thing. We all know we can't do that. <laughs> I, I know, I know. I, it's, it's there, it's, it's good. But you know what I want to talk about? I want to talk about how God mothers us and comforts us. And you say, well, hey, you, know, you, can't, you can't just say that. Well, you know, I can. In, in Isaiah 66, verse 13, it says, as a mother comforts a child so will I comfort you. God said that himself to his people. As a mother comforts a child, 
so will I comfort you. And I want to talk about some of the comfort the Lord gives to us, his mothering, his nurturing. And, you know, often we relate that more to a woman. I I know it's not always fair because some men are much more nurturing than their wives. Um, My husband is a nurturer, and he's really good at it, and he's fabulous at it. But it doesn't mean that that also doesn't mean that if you're a nurturer, it doesn't mean as a woman that you can't also be a strong warrior for God. And a, but it's just that some of these associations are usually made towards women. We tend to be seen as the more nurturing. And, you know, they've done some great leadership studies. And when they discovered the leadership styles of men and women, they have often found that women tend to be more nurturing towards their staff, more inclusive. So, I don't know. So, we're just going to call it the mothering part of God. Um, you know, in that verse I just read to you that um, he said, as, as, I, as a mother comforts a child, so will I comfort you. Do you know, that comes from Isaiah 66. And in Isaiah chapters 56 to 66, are, it contains an oracle that was written to God's people after exile and after the second temple was built. And you know, Some of the people, when they saw the new temple, wept because they remembered the old one. They remembered the one in all its glory that that Solomon had built, and and they longed for the old. And some people left family behind in Babylon, and some of them died in Babylon, and some of them are still there. And they're back in their homeland, but they're under foreign rule now, and it's just not the same as it was. And so in that oracle to them, he says, as as a, um, as a mother comforts a child, so will I comfort you. And, you know, I was thinking of this pandemic. When it's over, people say, oh, it'll never be the same. Everything's going to be different. And I don't know. I don't know what it'll look like. Some people will have lost their businesses. Some people will have lost a loved one who had to die alone. Finances, situations, school, I don't know what it's going to look like. But perhaps this same thing can apply to us. Perhaps God is saying to you, be comforted. I can comfort you just like your mother comforts you. I've got that here for you. You know, one of the ways that um, when I think of a, a mother's comfort, I show it by cooking. I cook. I love to cook for my children. I love to bake for my children. That's how I show them love, one of the ways. It's just, you know, even during this pandemic, Easter Easter Sunday, you know, we took a big basket of homemade pancakes and sauce and whipped cream and strawberries and my homemade cupcakes. Oh, they were beautiful. Green and yellow and pink. Beautiful. Little Easter eggs on top. That's how I was showing them my love. Look what I've done for you to show you my love. Well, you know, I I like to say we have a God who sometimes cooks for us. Yeah, well, there's a couple examples in the Bible. One of them was in the Old Testament in 1 Kings 19. When Elijah, who had just had a, a huge victory, he, um, he, you know, the, with the prophets of Baal, and they wanted to pray down fire, and they begged their gods, and they did everything they could, and they danced, and they called, and no fire. Then Elijah said, not only will I call down fire, but soak this baby with water. They poured water all over the thing, and he prayed, and of course, God came, consumed the, the sacrifice, consumed the altar, licked up the water, it says, Great, a great victory, and then the prophets of Baal were destroyed. And then he heard that Jezebel, the wicked queen, was going to kill him. 
I guess he got scared. Maybe he got depressed. Maybe you get the blues after a big victory. Sometimes that happens. But he ran away. And at one point, he left his servant aside and said, let me let, just go into the desert. I'm just going to go into the desert by myself. And he did. And he, he found a broom tree. I don't know what a broom tree is. I could have researched it, but I didn't bother. I heard the word broom, thought of housekeeping. I don't like broom trees. Actually, apparently, it's a kind of a sheltering, low-level tree. He went under that tree, and he said, God, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Kill me. Pretty low state to be in. But what I like is, God didn't immediately go to him and say, okay, Look what I just did. And now you're sitting here saying you want to die. Come on, what's your problem? Get up. Are you not trust me anymore? No, you know what he did? It said the angel of the Lord woke him up and said, I baked you some bread over coals. And I got a jug of cold water here for you. You see, the angel of the Lord is a phrase that's used many times in the Old Testament to mean uh, a manifestation of God himself or Jesus. We call it a, a theophany. Uh, somehow God manifests himself in his presence. You know several examples of that. Uh, the fourth man in the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the voice out of the burning bush, Moses heard. Manifestations of God. So when we hear the angel of the Lord, we know this is a, a manifestation of God himself. And instead of getting mad at him, he cooked bread for him. Do you love this? I'm a mother. I love this. Woke him up, said, Eat. So he, he ate and he drank some of the water. Then he went back to sleep. Then the angel of the Lord returned and woke him up again and said, okay, eat. I got some more here for you. Eat, rest. And then he said, I want you to go up to that, the Mount, uh, what was that Mount? Horeb. <laughs> I want you to go up there and uh, I'm going to speak to you up there. And you know, that's the same mountain where Moses heard the uh, burning bush speak to him. Anyways, he went up there, he journeyed over to it, having been strengthened by the food and the rest. And he went up into this cave, and then God said to him, okay, what are you doing here? I don't know if he said it like that. I'm saying it like a Jewish mother. What are you doing here? But he said, what are you doing here? And out came his complaint. And he said, you know, I have been zealous for you, God. But they wouldn't accept your covenant. And they broke down your altars. And, and they're killing all the prophets. And I'm the only one left. And then the voice said to him, go out on the side of the mountain. I'm, I'm going to pass by. My presence is going to pass by. So he stood out there. And this magnificent wind that just rocked everything. And then the earthquake that shook and the rocks shook. And then a fire. But each time it said God was not in the wind. God was not in the fire. God was not in the earthquake. And then came a gentle, still voice. And that was God. And then he said to him for the second time, Okay, Elijah, what are you doing here? And he poured out his complaint again. I'm the only one left. They wouldn't accept you. They tore down the hospital and they're trying to kill me. And, you know. and then God said to him, he said, okay. He talked to him and we're assuming the gentle voice was still going on. He's not slapping him upside the head. He's saying, okay, listen, Elijah, this is what I want you to do. He gave him instructions. I want you to go down there. I want you to anoint Elisha. I want you to do this. And, da, da, da. and uh, by the way, there are 7,000 still 
who have not bowed to Baal. You all know that story, but but to me, the gentleness with which God treated him, fed him, let him sleep, gave him some more bread, then gave him an audiovisual presentation showing that he wasn't always in these great things, but sometimes he was a gentle voice. He cooked for him. I love that. And the New Testament, we have example of him cooking for us too. Uh, this is a beautiful verse. John 21, 12. Come and have breakfast. You know who said that? Jesus. The disciples are in the boat. Jesus is on the shore. Now this is after his resurrection. He has seen the disciples. We think this is the third time. The first time he appeared with the disciples and, and Thomas wasn't there. The next time uh, uh, Thomas was there and he saw all of them. And then this time he was on the shore and he saw them fishing, not very successfully. He said, boys, throw the net on the other side. And they did, and they hauled so many fish they couldn't even get the nets into the boat. And then John recognized, it's the Lord. And so they went whipping off to the shore. Of course, Peter first, because Peter is, in my estimation, a little bipolar. He's either denying Jesus or he's the first one to step out of the boat anyway. So Jesus, so Peter runs to the shore. Because Jesus is saying, come and have breakfast. <laughs> he cooked fish for them. And he made bread for them. We don't have any indication that Jesus had ever approached Peter before this about what he had done. About his denying him three times. We don't have any indication that did. So this was probably the first time. So they ate. Everybody was comfortable. They had lots of fish. Everything was good. Then Jesus takes Peter aside and says, Peter, do you love me? Oh, yes, Lord, you know I do. Okay, but Peter, do, do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know I do. Why are you asking this? And then again, Peter, do you love me? I don't know. Sometimes people say three times because he denied him three times. I don't know. But when God asked him, when Jesus asked him those questions, he then said, now I have work for you to do didn't throw him out because he'd been an idiot. He didn't push, put him aside because he hadn't been perfect. He just reaffirmed his love. You're mine, aren't you, Peter? You're mine. Okay, feed my sheep and follow me. Two beautiful examples of God cooking for us. As a mother cooks for a child. As a mother comforts a child. I just love those. Maybe it's because I have this thing about food. I love food. I love it too much, but... So then, that's literally cooking for them. And then we have that verse in the Psalm, Psalm 23, 5, where it says, He prepares a table before you in the presence of your enemies. Wow. In the presence of your enemies? Some say the shepherd and sheep analogy is carried on down to verse 5. Some say, no, it's a whole new one. He's now presenting himself as a host. He's prepared a banquet for them. But the key part is it's in the presence of their enemies. And so that can say to us today, what is the enemy surrounding you right now? Is it the outcome of this pandemic? Have you, have you lost your business? Have you lost a lot of money? Have you... Lost a loved one, God forbid. What are you going through? Is it finances? Is it trouble in the family? What is it? What are you going through? And, and I believe 
God says to us, in the middle of all that, I am spreading a table for you. I will feed you. I will comfort you in the middle of all this. He comforts us today. He makes a table for us today. So he doesn't literally feed us now, but how does he feed us and comfort us now? I think there are several ways. One is when we come to the table of the Lord, communion. We come to participate in the body and the blood to remember. And when you're feeling down and overwhelmed by the enemy around you, to pause and take time to remember, this is the price you paid for me. I really am forgiven. You really do love me. And the community of it, you're doing it with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. That fellowship, that communion, that's one of the ways he comforts us. Another way he comforts us now is, um, I just lost my place there. Oh yeah, is sometimes with, just with his scripture. Sometimes you can read the scriptures and you know, you do it a lot and you read it, but every once in a while, God uses one scripture specifically to speak comfort into your heart. I remember once I was going through something and uh, terribly concerned for someone in my family, terrified for someone in my family. Panic was starting to grip my heart because there was nothing I could do. And I was saying, God, God, what are you doing? And you know what immediately popped into my head? Find rest, O oh my soul, in God alone. I didn't even know where it was in the Bible. I found out later it's in Psalm 62. I don't remember ever having learned it, but it jumped into my spirit and immediately I felt the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit. Find rest, O oh my soul. Where? In this? Or maybe you can do that? No, in God alone. In God alone. And I was comforted. Sometimes we have to teach our children how to soothe themselves, how to self-soothe Sometimes with a blankie or somebody, when you're not right there, they can soothe themselves. I have a little grandson. God love him. Beautiful. Two years old. Gorgeous. And we saw him doing this a couple times, and we were quite surprised. He was upset. He wasn't getting his way, and he didn't like that. I can't, he says. He's, he was mad. But then he sort of stood at the wall and went. And then he had another little cry, and then. And then he turned around, and he was okay. And we were saying, is he, is he learning to self-soothe? Has he just learned how to soothe himself? Sometimes we need to do that when we can't sense the comfort of God. I was driving down the highway one day, overwhelmed with grief again for someone that I loved very much. And I didn't know what to do. And I, didn't, and I remember saying to God, God, please, please, if I ever needed to feel, to sense your presence and your comfort, it's now. And nothing. Nothing. So I self-soothed. I said, God, I really, I really wanted to feel your presence. But since I cannot feel it, I will rest on what I know to be true. And I know you hold me and my children in the palm of your hand. 
a couple months later, it was Mother's Day. And you know what someone gave me for Mother's Day? A ceramic figurine of a hand with a child nestled in it. Had God heard me on the highway? Yeah. Did I automatically feel his comfort? No. I self-soothed. I encouraged myself with the things that I knew to be true from his word. Sometimes he comforts us through the people of God. Community, that's why we need each other. I remember one time at our church camp. Again, I guess I get overwhelmed a lot in my life. Overwhelmed with personal pain that I didn't know how to deal with. And I went up to the altar and I just cried. And this retired minister came up to me. He saw my pain. He felt my pain. He just put his arms around me and cried with me. Oh, and then he prayed too, but he cried with me. If that man could feel that for me, is that how my Jesus sees me? He weeps with us. He feels our pain. The people of God. I'm suggesting to you today that God can even speak to you sometimes through music. He brings back a spiritual song or a hymn or a, a something and you're touched. Very concerned about someone in my family another time. And I heard the song, there is always a place at the table. There's a feast that is waiting all your own. Your place, listen to this one. Your place is set each time the family gathers. But it will never be the same till you are home. Some of you need to come to the table. It's set there for you. Some have been away from the table and you think, no, I got to come back. I need the comfort and love of a nurturing parent right now. I need to be fed. Come to the table. Some of you are already at the table, but maybe you've pushed back a little. Time to pull up close. Time to pull your chair up close to the table and taste of the food, and let him speak to you. And if you have never known the comfort and love of a caring mother, you can get it directly from him. Not only is he a father to the fatherless, he is a mother to the motherless. Pull into the table. Come home. Come home. Father, I'm asking you, to just put that, that thing in people's heart like you do that says, come home. I ask you, Father, to, to encourage us to pull up closer to the table, to sense you, to eat from your banqueting table. Do this, Lord, this morning as we sit in your presence. As we sit in our living rooms, as we are together with our family, speak to us in our hearts, we pray. Amen. God bless you.
Joanne's invitation to all of us to come home is very real and very powerful. Maybe today you're here and you're spoken to and need to experience the comfort that she spoke of. That comfort comes from Jesus. If anything that has been said has resonated with you, or you want to know more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, our team wants to come alongside you and pray and help you in this new journey. If that is you this morning, there's a link in the chat and we want you to respond to that. We will respond to you immediately. Thank you so much for doing this. And before you go, we want to take time to remind you that youth and kidsmen have online social hangs happening right after our gathering today. Young Life is at 11.11am and kidsmen starts at 12. Thank you so much for making us part of your weekend. Now, in ancient times, the one who blessed raised their hands for a blessing. And those receiving the blessing did likewise. Here it is, Soul Sanctuary. May the Lord who brought us to birth by his spirit strengthen us for the Christian life. May the Lord who provides for all our needs sustain us day by day. May the Lord whose steadfast love is constant as a mother's care send us out to live and work for others. Now go into your week knowing you're embraced by the love of a God, a love that is sweeter and more tender than any you've ever known. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you and remain with you always. Amen. Now go and live the church.